Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? Well, we're finally ready to wrap up our episodes looking back on the big tech stories that unfolded during 2022. There was so much stuff, and a lot of it was really dramatic. Uh, too much of it was just upsetting. So today, we're going to f- mostly focus on cool science and tech stuff. And that's a big old yay. We do what we must, because we can. So let's start with the James Webb Space Telescope. After many, many delays, in fact, years of delays, because uh, the telescope was originally intended to launch into space way back in 2007, it finally shuffled off its earthly coil last Christmas. It let slip the bonds of Earth. And last Christmas, I gave you James Webb. The very next day, you said, change that darn name. Just a quick word on that. James Webb is the name of a former NASA administrator. In fact, he was the second ever administrator of NASA. But he had previously served as an undersecretary of state at the, you know, State Department. And he served in that capacity from 1949 to 1952. Now, this was during a time in the U.S. known as the Lavender Scare. That refers to an era, an ugly era, in U.S. history, when the federal government discriminated against anyone who falls under the scope of 
LGBTQ+. Essentially, the government would exclude or expel people that were known or suspected to not be heterosexual, claiming that it was like a national security issue. And the State Department in particular was a real target of this kind of witch hunt. Congress launched an investigation in 1950 into the State Department, and President Eisenhower would later sign an executive order essentially putting an exclamation mark at the end of this pernicious practice. And yeah, this is one of the many periods of American history that are ugly and hateful. And ultimately, they are self-defeating because you can only imagine how many qualified, dedicated folks were denied employment simply because they didn't fit the extremely narrow set of beliefs of a bunch of old people. Anyway, that policy was in place when Webb took the position of NASA Administrator in 1961, and in fact, one NASA budget analyst named Clifford J. Norton was fired because of his sexual orientation. That happened in 1963. Well, because of these events and because of concerns about James Webb and his potential role in perpetuating this practice, NASA was pressured to conduct a research study into the matter to find out what, if any, involvement James Webb had in carrying out Congress's desires at the State Department, or if, in fact, he was part of Norton getting fired at NASA later on. And the investigation said that there was no evidence to show Webb did either of those things. In fact, according to their investigation, Webb purposefully limited the amount of information that Congress could access relating to State Department employees. And as for Norton at NASA, he was fired, and he was fired because he was gay. But there was no evidence that Webb was even aware of Norton being fired at all. Because keep in mind, Webb was the leader of NASA. Norton was a budget analyst. So it's not like nor like Webb had direct oversight over every single employee at NASA. So the report found that there was no evidence that was clearly showing Webb participating in the persecution of LGBTQ plus personnel. Uh, there was a tiny bit of evidence suggesting that he did limit Congress's reach into the State Department, potentially protecting people. So NASA decides that it's going to stick with the James Webb name. Now, y'all, I personally don't know if James Webb was a decent guy, or maybe maybe he wasn't. Maybe he just had so much on his plate he didn't worry about a policy that perhaps he didn't even believe in. I have no clue. I just don't know. The NASA report came from the agency's chief historian, so it came from NASA's chief historian. You could argue that, you know, the fact that it was NASA's own chief historian might mean that it could be a biased report, but anyway, that's the story behind the name and the controversy around it, which flares up every now and again. It's not like this is the first time we've heard about it, but in 2022, uh, that story did start making the rounds again. But let's get to the telescope itself. Now, NASA launched the James Webb Telescope in 2021 on Christmas Day, as it turns out. But it would take the telescope uh, a month to get to its orbital point, and uh, to fully deploy, and it took more months beyond that for it to actually start doing science. And so all of that is really the domain of 2022, baby. So one month after launch in January 2022, the telescope arrived at a point in space we call L2. The L stands for Lagrange. 
more specifically, Lagrange Point. Some people may say Lagrange, uh, which is probably the more correct pronunciation. But, you know, I've also heard NASA folks called Gemini, Gemini. So I guess it's all up for grabs. Anyway, a Lagrange Point is a position in space where an object will stay put relative to the rest of its surroundings, like, you know, a, a two-body system. So it's a point in space where the gravitational forces from nearby bodies, like, say, the sun and the Earth, are effectively holding the object in that part of space. It can't move away from that because it's being held gravitationally by these other bodies. There are five such points around the Earth or between the Earth and Sun where an object can do this. And the one that the James Webb Telescope is in is called L2. That's in an orbit that's on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun. So in other words, this orbit is shaded from much of the Sun's light, uh, which is important for the telescope's extremely sensitive detectors when it's making observations. Uh, It does still get some light, otherwise it wouldn't be able to collect light through its solar panels, and those solar panels would be for decorative use only, and that would be ridiculous. It is a very sensitive telescope. The James Webb Space Telescope is about seven times more powerful than the venerable Hubble Space Telescope, and it has already returned some truly spectacular data, including images, uh, such as a shot of the Pillars of Creation. This is a dust cloud There's a really compelling shape to it. I'm sure you've seen pictures of it. If not, you should look up Pillars of Creation on uh, an image search because it really is a spectacular sight. We've seen some pictures of early star formation, which is great. It's giving astronomers more information about how stars form. Uh, We've looked at galactic black holes that are far across the universe from our own galaxy. We've looked at exoplanets orbiting a star, and these exoplanets potentially could have viable atmospheres, and so could possibly support life. And we're just getting started. And considering how complicated the telescope is, this was never a guarantee. I mean, the massive 18 solar panels had to unfold as the telescope made its way to L2 over the course of a month. And just one failure would have brought the entire mission into jeopardy, or at least severely limit its its use. And since NASA had spent decades and like $10 billion on this thing, it would be really bad if things hadn't worked out. But it did. So good news there. Uh, It did have a little bit of a hiccup recently. So on December 7th of 2022, just a few weeks ago, several of its instruments aboard the telescope went into safe mode. So that means they temporarily shut down in order to protect delicate hardware. The source of the problem turned out to be a software fault. So this software was essentially generating errors that related to the telescope's attitude control. Now, in this sense, attitude control isn't about making sure the telescope doesn't act out like a hormonal teenager. I I wish we had that kind of attitude control here on Earth. No, we're talking about the telescope's physical orientation in space, like where it is pointed, that kind of attitude. So the software was generating an error that suggested something was wrong with this system when nothing actually was. Uh, The shutdowns affected some, but not all, of the experiments that the telescope was involved in. 
uh, work had to pause on certain projects while engineers back on Earth sussed out what was going on. But by December 20th, those engineers had figured out a solution. They were able to essentially patch the software. And now the telescope is back doing science in space full time. NASA reports the telescope is in great condition and the agency is working to reschedule the affected projects that had to delay as the software was glitching out. The telescope is bound to tell us about the early stages of the universe already. It has captured images of systems that are like only 400 million years younger than the universe itself. Like in other words, the universe comes into existence and then these systems started within 400 million years of that. And yes, 400 million years is an astoundingly long time on our scale, right? Yes, that's that's unfathomable. However, when we consider the universe is somewhere in the neighborhood of 13.7 billion years old, it's really just a fraction a moment after the Big Bang uh, banged. The telescope is creating new possibilities in the fields of astronomy and cosmology, and my guess is we're going to learn a ton of fascinating stuff about our universe and, by extension, our own solar system and history, and that's just plain cool. Now, sticking with NASA, we have a related topic that's been somewhat controversial in multiple spheres, and I'm talking about the Artemis program. This is NASA's plan to return to the moon. And to be clear, it's not just NASA. NASA's working in conjunction with other space agencies out there. And by return, I am including the goal of actually landing people on the moon's surface. This would be the first time we have done that since 1972 in the Apollo 17 mission. So the Artemis program has a pretty complicated history. Back in the mid-2000s, during the George W. Bush administration in the United States, NASA initiated a program called Constellation. This had the goal of returning to the moon, among other things. This program was linked with a couple of related but distinct projects that were really focused on building the next generation of spacecraft that would turn out into the uh, Orion and the Space Launch System. Uh, keep in mind, this was all going on while the space shuttle was still in service, but its retirement date was coming up. So this was work that was being done with the knowledge that the space shuttle program was going to be sunset. Now, when Barack Obama won the election to president, things changed. And this frequently happens with NASA. It's actually one of the really big challenges that the agency faces because there's no guarantee that an incoming administration will continue to support the efforts that were begun under a previous administration. So not only do you have the technical challenges of creating the spacecraft that will complete a mission uh, or the engineering challenges of planning out the mission itself and the various processes that the mission is going to have to follow, you also have the political reality that your funding can change dramatically year to year, depending upon the makeup of Congress and it can change even more so from presidential administration to administration. Obama effectively canceled Constellation. He said the program was behind schedule and it was over budget. It was both of those things. Uh, further, he said the program was leaning too hard on the Apollo program of the 60s and 70s, that the Orion spacecraft, it does, I mean, essentially look like a larger version of the Apollo capsule. The launch vehicle looks like an update to the launch vehicles that we used 50 years ago. And Obama criticized the program for lacking in innovation. 
a committee found that Constellation, despite being over budget, was also underfunded, and that there was no chance the program would be able to achieve a moon landing by 2020, which was one of its goals. And so rather than pouring more money into this program that the administration saw as sort of bleeding cash, Obama chose to essentially freeze it out. The focus began to shift toward commercial space companies, primarily SpaceX, as carrying the load for the near term, although work would continue on developing the next generation of spacecraft for NASA itself. So Orion and the space launch system were not scrapped. They continued on. And the benefit, I guess, of that was that, or the the reason they were able to do this, I guess, was because they were not uh, intrinsically part of Constellation. Okay. This will bring us up to 2017 and the Artemis program. It got its start under the administration of Donald Trump, and it picked up some of the threads that were dropped when Constellation got the axe. We'll talk more about that in just a moment after we come back from this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. So the Artemis program is a joint effort between NASA and other space agencies like the ESA, the European Space Agency, uh, and its main goal is to establish a permanent presence on the moon and a lunar orbital station meant to help stage further human exploration of space. So the primary spacecraft for this mission is the Orion, and the launch vehicle is the Space Launch System, or SLS. Now, the SLS alone has been the subject of a lot of controversy, mostly stemming from the contractors that NASA has relied upon during the very long development process for this launch system. Uh, So yeah, another big challenge with NASA is that the agency does a lot of contracting, with massive aerospace companies to produce various components for stuff like spacecraft, spacesuits, 
launch vehicles, that kind of thing. So it's not like NASA has some sort of foundry where it just uh, um, uses uh, massive blacksmiths who create rockets and stuff. They contract with these very big uh, companies that specialize in aerospace uh, uh, technologies. So these contracts can get really expensive. Uh, Sometimes individual projects will take more time than was estimated and cost more than was estimated during the proposal phase. And frequently, NASA becomes the subject of scrutiny when various analysts and journalists and politicians and others ask, hey, did you really pick the best contractor to do this? Because it's running over budget and behind deadline. The problem is, we usually don't know the answer to the question, is this the best contractor for the job, until it's too late. But yeah, NASA often gets put in the spotlight for budget issues and contractor choices. There's always the question of, was the choice of contractor a political choice or was it the best choice for the mission? Like there are a lot of these issues that NASA has to contend with as well. Anyway, all of this plagued the SLS and it took years and years and years for it to finally get to the point where they could launch the darn thing. Uh, So it was first proposed to launch way back in 2016, but it took six years to get to where NASA could actually do a a full launch of the SLS. And within those six years, there were multiple launch dates that had been proposed and postponed. It led some to question if the whole thing was just going to be a bust, if it's just going to be a massive failure. But this year, we finally got a launch. Now, it was meant to launch in August, but then one of the sensors on the launch vehicle indicated that part of the engine was warmer than it should be, and it put it outside the parameters of safe operation, so the launch was scrubbed. Uh, NASA would try again the following month in September, but then we got word that there was some sort of hydrogen leak in part of the system, and that necessitated canceling that launch. Then it got pushed to October, but this time it wasn't NASA's fault. Uh, We had a hurricane, actually had a couple of them, but Hurricane Ian was the big one. Uh, I was actually on a ship that was at sea when Ian hit. We were supposed to return to to, uh, Cape Canaveral, Port Canaveral, and uh, we couldn't because of Ian, and I was stuck at sea for a few days more than was my original plan. That was exciting. But finally, on November 16th, NASA was able to launch the the space launch system, the SLS, and attached to it was an Orion spacecraft. Now, there was no human crew aboard that capsule, but there were some mannequins and a plush toy or two, and it also carried a biology experiment designated Biology Experiment 1 that aimed to study space radiation's effects on fungi and yeast and seeds and such because... Obviously, any kind of prolonged human activity in space means that humans are potentially going to be uh, uh, exposed to various types of radiation that otherwise they'd be protected from here on Earth. So that was the, the goal of that particular experiment, was to learn a little bit more about that. The SLS successfully attained orbit, the Orion spacecraft successfully separated from the launch vehicle, and it went on a 26-ish like 25 and a half day long trip that took it all the way around the backside of the moon and returned to earth. So on Sunday, December 11th, 2022, the Orion capsule from Artemis one returned to earth. It splashed down in the Pacific ocean and a Navy crew retrieved the capsule and it will be transported back to, uh, 
to Kennedy Space Center in Florida. So that concluded the Artemis One mission, and it was an enormous achievement. And yes, it was an achievement that had been long delayed, but it still demonstrated this capability that humanity can return to the moon. Uh, It's a type of space exploration that humans just haven't engaged in in 50 years. So it was a really big deal. Analysts are going to look over the data from the Artemis 1 mission and use that data to help prepare for Artemis 2. This will be uh, the first mission in the Artemis program to include a human crew aboard an Orion spacecraft. Uh, But this mission will not include a lunar landing. The mission will go into outer space and the crew will pilot the Orion capsule and put it through its paces, but it will not land on the moon. That won't happen until Artemis 3. The Artemis 2 mission will happen no earlier than 2024. And then Artemis 3 will happen at some point after that, maybe as early as 2025. But I would be a little cautious to put that as the actual date when it'll happen. As I mentioned earlier, there's actually disagreement regarding whether the Artemis program is a worthy use of time, money, and resources. Some would prefer more of a focus on Mars rather than the moon. Some question the value of sending humans at all, when we can rely more on robots and uncrewed missions. Then there are critics who think going back to the moon is a good idea, but they don't agree with the way Artemis programs process has that laid out. They don't agree with that plan. Uh, As for myself, I'm actually conflicted. I'm not really sure how to feel about it. Uh, I do think these missions can be inspiring. I think there's always benefits that emerge as a result of the work that is necessary to make these missions possible. You know, engineers have to figure out how to make this work. And in the process, they create things that can have other uses here on Earth. So we can have real benefits to the advancements that people make just in order to accomplish the goals of these missions. So that's good. Uh, I just, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about Artemis, but it's, I I, I certainly want to see more people inspired to pursue science and engineering and that sort of thing. And there is no doubt that stories about astronauts going back to the moon is a really inspiring story. Uh, Another great NASA story for 2022 was the success of the DART mission. You might recall that DART stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, and that this mission was to test whether or not smashing a spacecraft into something like an asteroid could divert its path sufficiently sufficiently so that you can move it out of the way of, say, a trajectory that would take it toward Earth. Uh, The reason that this is important is that, on occasion, fairly sizable stuff does smash into our planet and have catastrophic consequences. Uh, You can ask the dinosaurs about that. Oh, wait, you can't because they're all dead because of a celestial object that smashed into the Earth and made it uninhabitable for dinosaurs. So for years, there have been folks wondering about how we might be able to alter the trajectory of something that otherwise could be on a collision course with the Earth. And there have been a lot of proposals. 
Uh, of course, you've got the Hollywood version in which we send Bruce Willis up there to blow up an incoming asteroid. This, by the way, would be a very bad idea because instead of one huge rock hurtling at us, you would create a bunch of slightly smaller rocks hurtling at us, kind of like turning a bullet into a cloud of shotgun pellets. And some of those might incinerate upon entering the Earth's atmosphere, but a lot of them would make it down to Earth, and essentially all you would be doing is increasing the surface area of impact. It would not be a good idea. Anyway, one of the possible solutions that is considered to be a good idea is to send up a spacecraft to act as a sort of battering ram and to nudge an object like a meteor or an asteroid enough so that it doesn't hit our planet. But how do you test that? You don't wait for the day when you definitely have to do something because something's heading our way, because if it doesn't work, well, that's bad. So you need to test it in advance. So what NASA did was it identified a a couple of asteroids, uh, or if you prefer, an asteroid and its quote-unquote moonlet, and the DART spacecraft crashed into the moonlet, which has a name, thank you very much, it's Dimorphos. So the goal was to alter Dimorphos's orbit around its asteroid and reduce the orbit by at least 73 seconds. So on September 26th, 2022, DART makes contact with Dimorphos. And then astronomers are surprised to see that the orbit did shorten, but it shortened way more than 73 seconds. It became 32 minutes shorter. So this was a huge success. DART showed that using a bit of percussive maintenance, we can change the flight path of a small body in space. And that kind of knowledge can end up being really important should we detect such a small object that is on a collision course with our planet. And the earlier we detect it, the better our chances are, and also the less we'll need to actually move the object to put it on a different path, right? Like, if if it's far enough out, you just have to alter its course by a couple of degrees and it will completely miss the Earth. So that shows that it's really important, one, to have the solution of how you move it, and two, that you're able to identify uh, these objects as early as possible, because not only do you have to, you know, find it, but you also have to prepare the mission and launch it in time for it to make a difference. So very important work here. One more space thing I want to talk about before I go to break. So I covered in yesterday's episode the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Well, clearly that has had a big effect on space efforts as well as terrestrial technology matters. Russia has facilities, it has launch vehicles, it is a space-capable nation, one of the few on Earth. There's only like half a dozen of them on Earth. And a lot of space agencies in, in Europe and elsewhere depend upon Russia as the staging grounds for their own space missions. But with the world placing sanctions on Russia, this became untenable politically. And so several missions had to be postponed or outright canceled, scrapped. So for example, the European Space Agency, the ESA, had a Mars mission planned, but it was going to use Russian hardware and a Russian launch facility, and the ESA subsequently chose to postpone the mission, and instead they will end up uh, reconfiguring the entire mission so that it will not rely on Russian hardware and launch facilities. That will take about three years and something like 17 billion euro, an incredible decision. Like to, to make that choice 
sends a pretty powerful message. Or take the story of OneWeb. Now, I'll have to do a full episode about OneWeb in the future because that company has had a dramatic history. Technically, you could say companies because really it it was like the phoenix. It collapsed and burnt up and then a new version of OneWeb rose from the ashes. It started off in America as a company aiming to bring satellite-based broadband internet connectivity to the market. Now, to be clear, there already were satellite-based internet companies in place, but OneWeb's goal was to use very small, or relatively small, and relatively inexpensive satellites, and then create constellations of these satellites that would provide uninterrupted service to customers on the ground. And you might be thinking, huh, this sounds a bit like Starlink. And you would be right. In fact, very early on, OneWeb was working with SpaceX on plans for this service to use SpaceX to help launch the satellites up into space. And then a year or so later, Elon Musk announced SpaceX's competing business, Starlink, that had a very familiar business plan to it. I'm not saying anything happened. I'm just saying that's a fact. So anyway, the US-based OneWeb actually went bankrupt in 2020. The pandemic killed that business. And a consortium that included the UK government purchased the company's assets in auction, bankruptcy auction, in November of 2020. So the OneWeb of today is a different company than the original OneWeb. Anyway, OneWeb had planned to launch more than 30 satellites on a Russian launch vehicle earlier this year in 2022, but then Russia invaded Ukraine and there was pressure on the UK government to scrap the mission. Russia told OneWeb, hey, this thing's paid for, so if you pinky swear that none of these satellites will ever be used by militaries, then we're good ski. Also, the UK government needs to sell off its interest in OneWeb. But the UK government was not ready to do that. It did not want to give up ownership of OneWeb. It did not want to guarantee that it would not use the satellite communication system for military purposes. So they refused to acquiesce to the request and Russia scrapped the mission and kept the satellites. Woof. Also, Russia announced in the summer of this year that it will leave the International Space Station in 2024 and will prepare to launch its own independent space station. The ISS has already served well past its initial estimated decommission date, but the hope in the U.S. was to continue operations until 2030 or so. This will be a lot harder to do without the cooperation of the Russians who handle a lot of the propulsion systems aboard the ISS, so unless they hand those over, it's going to be real hard to keep the ISS in operation. Not necessarily impossible, but really hard. But this announcement struck some as being another attempt by Russia to kind of strike a blow to the West. And maybe it was. All right, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, it's grab bag time. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. 
Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, like I said before the break, we're in a kind of grab bag situation of various scientific and technological advancements that we saw in 2022. And let's get our start with nuclear fusion. So to recap, fusion is when two atoms fuse together and they form a heavier atom. And it's the process that happens in the sun, where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. See, in the sun, you've got incredible forces of gravity and heat that allow for this nuclear process to happen. And an output of this process, besides helium, is a huge release of energy. And that energy is what we here on Earth receive, and it makes life possible. Now contrast this with nuclear fission. This is the process where we take a heavy atom, such as uranium, and we use some force to split this atom into two or more lighter atoms, and possibly some other byproducts. This process also releases energy. In fact, this is the process that our nuclear power plants use here on Earth. There are some drawbacks to this approach, however. Namely, you end up with some radioactive byproducts that are dangerous to organic critters like us. So you have to figure out what are you going to do with these byproducts. Typically, it involves putting nuclear waste in dry casks and then storing those on site at the nuclear power plants. And meanwhile, the world debates on where to put the stuff long term. And here in the United States, there was a proposal for a really long time uh, to store it under Yucca Mountain in Nevada. But those plans have encountered lots of opposition. It turns out folks are not keen on the idea of having material that emits invisible, deadly levels of radiation anywhere close to them, or even not that close to them, like a decent distance from them is still not far enough, at least in their minds. And that's kind of understandable. I mean, like I said, nuclear radiation is invisible, and unless there's a really intense amount of it, it's undetectable to your typical person unless they happen to be carrying a Geiger counter or something like that. Anyway, while proponents and opponents of nuclear power argue about whether or not there is a truly safe way to store nuclear waste long term, there's this tempting possibility of nuclear fusion. Fusion doesn't create the same kind of radioactive materials that fission does. Uh, it does have some 
byproducts, some waste that we'd have to deal with, but nothing on the level of nuclear fission. And that gives it a really attractive uh, slant. Another is that the main fuel source we would use, hydrogen, is the most plentiful stuff on the planet. There, but there are some catches. Uh, one of the big catches is that to initiate fusion, you have to use a lot of energy to get things started. Remember, the reason this happens in the sun is because you have this incredible force of gravity and this intense heat that uh, provides the ignition energy needed to keep this process going. So we have to do sort of the same thing here on Earth somehow without you know, turning the Earth into the sun. So meanwhile, if you get less energy out than what you got putting into it, well, that means you're spending more energy than you're getting back. This is a bad investment. But then we saw some exciting progress in this field this year. Not too long ago, scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory uh, held a fusion experiment in which the energy emitted was greater than the laser energy that was used to generate the reaction in the first place. Specifically, the lasers delivered 2.05 megajoules of energy to the little fusion pellet, and the reaction generated 3.15 megajoules of energy. So 2.05 in, 3.15 out. So we get more out than we put in, sort of. Now, I say sort of, because this only works if we're just looking at the amount of energy that the lasers delivered versus the amount of energy released by the, the fusion inside the pellet. However, if we then consider how much energy we needed to consume to generate that laser power in the first place, things change. Because unfortunately, lasers are not particularly energy efficient devices. So in order to generate that 2.05 megajoules of laser energy, the lab actually had to pull 300 megajoules of energy from the electrical grid. So when you think about it in that respect, you see they had to use 100 times the amount of energy they got out of that reaction. And yeah, taking that into account is a bummer. But this experiment is still really encouraging, and that's partly because this is not the only way we can achieve fusion. It's just one of them. Lasers are just involved in, in a couple of the different ways. There are other ways as well. And if we can get the same sort of results that the scientists got out of this experiment, then we might be on the right track. Uh, here on Earth, it's pretty hard to replicate the conditions of the sun, but this experiment brought us a little step closer to doing it. And if we can get nuclear fusion to work out for us in the long run, it will really address our energy needs for, well, for our lifetimes and well beyond our lifetimes. And that's exciting. Uh, it would let us move off of fossil fuels entirely, and that would be great for the planet. But we still have a lot of work to do before any of this becomes practical. And my guess is it's still going to take some decades to get there. Uh, I should also mention that in China, scientists were able to create a sustained nuclear fusion reaction, and it lasted for more than 17 minutes. Because another big challenge with fusion here on Earth is not just getting the reaction started, but it's keeping a reaction going so that you can continue to release energy that you can harness and convert into electricity. It doesn't do you a whole lot of good if you do release a lot more energy than you put in, but it only lasts for an instant. That's not really enough for us to make practical use out of it. So this 
news from China about how they created a superheated plasma and they were able to maintain it for more than 17 minutes, that is just as exciting as this other announcement of the, the experiment that generated or released more energy than was put in. So these are all pieces that are necessary for us to have a working nuclear fusion uh, uh, process in the future. We also saw advancements in quantum computing in 2022. IBM recently announced a 433-qubit quantum computer called the Osprey, which is the largest of its quantum computers to date. So you might think, what does any of that mean? Well, my guess is you probably know your basic computers ultimately rely on bits or binary digits. And this is what is used to run computations at the machine level. So a bit can have one of two values. It can either be a zero or it can be a one. You can think of it like a light switch, which can be off or on. And all computations, when you really break them down to their most basic level, boil down to mathematic operations on big old groups of zeros and ones, of bits. Well, a quantum computer relies on quantum bits or qubits, and qubits have some odd behaviors. So, for example, they can exist in superposition. This means a qubit can effectively behave as though it is both a zero and a one, and technically all values in between, simultaneously. This means that if you design a proper algorithm to take advantage of the qubits and you have enough qubits to do it, you can tackle a subset of computational problems that are very difficult for classical computers and then solve them in a fraction of the time that you would need otherwise. Because essentially what the quantum computer can do is run all the different variations of that problem in parallel with one another and then compare all the outputs at the end and give you the one that is most likely to be correct. We also talk more about probabilities with quantum computers rather than uh, like, like specific confirmed results. It does get way more complicated from there. I mean, quantum computers are very delicate systems. It's very easy for them to be upset. And then you end up with a very uh, pathetic classical computer system instead of a quantum computer system. It's important to remember that quantum computers will not be good for all computational problems. Instead, they'll be well-suited for a specific group of computational problems. Uh, one set of computational problems that is quite relevant to us today relates to cryptography and encryption. So at a very simple level, you can kind of think of encryption involving two very, very large prime numbers, like hundreds of digits long, but they're prime numbers. You take these two different, very big prime numbers and you multiply them together and then you get a product and everyone can see the product essentially. But only the people who hold the, the keys, those being the prime numbers, know what was used to make that product. Uh, so if you wanted to decrypt something that was use, using this particular encryption uh, process, you would first need to determine what were those two large prime numbers that were used to make this product in the first place? What were those two? And this is the type of problem that would make a classical computer take you know, thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of years to solve because it would go through every single 
prime number in order to determine whether or not this is the solution. And that would just take thousands of years. But a quantum computer with a suitable program written for it and with enough qubits to run it could potentially come back with a solution much, much more quickly. And this tells us that eventually quantum computers will make our current encryption methods totally pointless. But the National Institute of Standards and Technology has been reviewing proposed post-quantum cryptography methods in anticipation of tackling this problem before all secrets are revealed, which is really exciting stuff. Like, you start to get into kind of like a spy mentality. You're thinking, it's a race against the clock. Eventually, we're going to have quantum computer systems that are sufficiently powerful enough and have a sufficient algorithm designed for it to reverse certain types of encryption and make it a trivial task, which means the stuff that we count upon as being encrypted, like like, like really sensitive information, things like your, your, your financial information, maybe your credit card numbers, that kind of stuff, could just be revealed totally because you could reverse that encryption process using this methodology. So there is a necessity to develop the next generation of cryptographic techniques that will work both with classical computers and with quantum computers. That's really important to say because there was one proposed post-quantum cryptographic method that proved to be uh, solvable using classical computers, and that obviously doesn't solve the problem. And in 2022, we also saw some pretty amazing developments in AI. Uh, I'm specifically thinking about how several different AI image generating tools really emerged this year or became uh, famous this year, where you would type a prompt into a field and then an AI program generates an image based upon your prompt. And you can tweak your prompt and, and put in different adjectives or different guidelines and get new images that continue to try and develop this idea you've had. Uh, then there's the story of ChatGPT, the AI that can compose responses to text queries, and it can give you a text answer. Both of these applications of AI got a lot of attention and criticism this year. For one thing, the capabilities of AI have improved tremendously over recent years, but they still show that there are some interesting and sometimes humorous or even disturbing gaps between the way AI goes about doing something and the way humans do. Uh, some of the AI-generated images I have seen appear to have spawned from the fever-fueled brain of a mad genius. Like you look at that and think, yeah, no human would ever do this. Uh, others seem hopelessly misguided. You'll look at an image and say, I can't even tell you what words were used to prompt this image. Uh, as for the text, the text can span between being helpful, concise, and accurate to being very much inaccurate, but presented in such a way as to seem really confident. So it might make the reader feel, oh, I can depend upon this answer when in fact you might not be able to. And that's serves as a potential problem. Now, these instances of AI have launched multiple conversations um, in different contexts, right? You've got uh, the trustworthiness of AI. For example, how do we know the answers we get are accurate, are correct, are unbiased? And in a lot of cases, we don't know the answer to that because the AI isn't 
revealing what sources it draws from in order to compose the responses that we get. So without being able to check the AI's work, we can't be certain that it's reliable. And in fact, we have seen stories about how ChatGPT in particular could sometimes generate unreliable responses. Uh, So that is one of the concerns. But there are other conversations we've heard too. We've heard debates about whether or not AI is going to have a negative impact on artistic efforts going forward. Uh, If you train an AI to generate images that can mimic the style of working artists, does that not threaten those artists' livelihoods? I mean, if you're thinking, gosh, I really would love uh, a sketch by this one artist, but I can't afford their rates, but I could just use this AI to create a, 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 a mimic of what this artist would do based upon what I want. And I don't have to pay anyone anything that definitely is a concern in the creative world. Then there's also the concern that if an AI like chat GPT could potentially create an essay on any given subject, then what's going to stop students from cheating on their homework by giving it to AI. Now I have a solution to that, by the way, which is to eliminate homework, just get rid of it. I mean, I've, I've seen studies that show that homework doesn't do much good anyway. And so it ends up being a big, uh, uh, time killer for both students and teachers who have to grade the stuff. So yeah, you know, maybe, maybe get rid of the homework. Um, I, I, I don't really have a dog in that fight. I don't have kids and I haven't been in school for, a few decades. So I don't really have to worry about that. I mean, I have to generate essays every single week because that's kind of what these podcasts are, right? So, hey, maybe I'll do an episode that was completely written by AI, which I don't think I will do because one, I don't think AI will be able to produce an episode that is in my style. And two, if it does, I'm out of a job. So forget I said that. Okay, that's it. I am done looking back on the news stories of 2022. There were other ones, obviously. There were tons of things that happened in the tech world this past year. But I I wanted to tackle the really impactful ones I had been keeping an eye on throughout the year. And while there are others, uh, I feel like six or however many episodes we've done that have been retrospectives on 2022 are plenty. So tomorrow's episode will be something else. What? Who knows? I haven't really decided yet. I think I have an idea, but we will see. It'll also be the last episode of Tech Stuff for 2022, or at least the last new one. Uh, Friday's episode will be a classic episode. Then on Monday, the following Monday, we have a holiday here at iHeart. So it will be probably a rerun of some sort. I have not decided on that yet. And then starting on Tuesday of next week, we'll be back with all new episodes of Tech Stuff, looking forward to 2023 and the brave new world we will be in by then, I guess. I hope you're all well. Hope you are enjoying your time with friends and family. I wish you the best. We'll be back tomorrow with some more. If you have suggestions, you know how to reach me. I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to go through that whole spiel, but I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.